Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condis Presley. As we begin a new year, a look at how much this great city of Atlanta has going for it. The world's busiest airport in Hartsfield-Jackson International with that new tower and international terminal. Atlanta remains the headquarters of the worldwide news organization, that is CNN, as well as home to the oldest radio and television stations in the South. Yes, those call letters are WSB. It is a credit to the great visionary leaders in the city's history, from Ivan Allen to Mayor Hartsfield to our current mayor, Kasim Reed, that Atlanta is doing so well. It is also a credit to the partnership these leaders have had with leaders in the private sector that Atlanta is indeed the capital city of the South. This brings us to our guest. Sam Williams. Sam is one of the nation's leading experts in urban competitiveness. Over 17 years at the helm of the Atlanta Chamber and 22 as a partner in a global architect development company, Williams has earned a national reputation for harnessing the power of CEOs to make cities thrive. He's sharing much of what he has learned in a case study of sorts. It's a book, The CEO as Urban Statesman, and he is our guest. Welcome, Sam. Good morning, Kindness. Thank you for coming and see us. We're kind of doing a little bit of redo, but the audience doesn't care about that. Now, I hear that you are supposed to be retired, but instead you've put on your writing cap <laughs> and your teaching hat. So what have you been up to since leaving the chamber? Well, I, I flunked retirement. I have uh, written a book uh, based on experiences that I had watching and working with CEOs who took on big issues, tipping point issues like saving Grady Hospital. And in the middle of that also, I've taken a professorship at Georgia State University in Andrew Young School of Policy Studies. And uh, that's keeping me quite busy. So now, in this book, you've, you've gone to several cities, done some great research, and you have found the key to partnerships between the public and the private sector. What makes those relationships really work? Well, I think the first is that there's got to be strong leadership in the elected officials as well as in the business community. And, and secondly, that there is an issue that everyone agrees on that what I call a tipping point issue. Grady Hospital is going to close. Columbus, Georgia is losing its highly educated young people to other cities. Houston, Texas is recovering from Hurricane Ike. Uh, Salt Lake City, Oklahoma City, other cities that are covered in the book all have issues where the business community and the elected officials agreed that here's one thing that is long-term, it, it can't be fixed overnight, and it's going to determine the fate of the city going forward. Those tipping point issues where I've seen them emerge with a leader, a business community leader, a person who is a, an elder statesman, if you will, an urban statesman, and like Pete Carell and Michael Russell and Tom Bell here in Atlanta, who said, we will work to save Grady Hospital, but we've got to have a partnership with the, the government elected officials. 
And now look at Grady. It is on the on, on the top ten list of charity hospitals in the nation. They've raised over $350 million. It's a great success story. What was it in that relationship and the, what kind of decisions were there that helped to, to turn Grady around to save it? I mean, it's, it's our trauma center. It's a level one here in Atlanta. Oh, yes, and it's one of the biggest charity hospitals in the whole southeast. I, I think it was an agreement between the business community and the government officials that this is too big for government alone, local government alone, to solve and that the business community has to step in. But the philanthropic community and others who could fund it were skeptical as to how it would be governed. Is it going, is this a one-time infusion in five years, they're gonna be back again? So it took a real professional team of business and elected officials to sit down and go through alternatives of what do we need to do to make sure that if we give Grady a big infusion, how's it going to stand on its own? What is the advantage to a business leader to use those business and entrepreneurial skills to to partner up with somebody in government to have a big impact on the community? I think there are a lot of business leaders who have a big commitment to the city they live in, and they want to help, but they're not sure how. They're not elected officials, and I don't propose that this is a substitute for governance as we know it. But I think the, the real complexity is a, a place like Metro Atlanta now is 28 counties, over 160 municipalities. Sometimes elected officials have trouble working with things across jurisdiction. And I think business leaders can uniquely step into that and say, look, we've got to look beyond our borders. We've got to look at this one big issue that desperately needs to be fixed. And I think the motivation of business leaders is they're problem solvers by their nature. And they are perhaps not as sensitive to political issues as elected officials have to be because they need to run for public office. So business leaders don't have to get reelected, but they do have the ability to say this is the problem and here are two alternatives or three that can fix it. So in a sense, the, the business leader can give those elected officials, I guess, the necessary cover that they need to get something really big done. That's a, that's a very appropriate word. It gives them cover to do things that perhaps if they have an election coming in a year or two years would make them vulnerable because they just don't want to touch a topic that's that's hot. So in your book, you take a look at a number of cities and you found some examples where business and government worked together for the public good. We've talked a little bit about the turnaround of Grady Hospital. Take us to Oklahoma City and what was the problem there and how was that fixed? Well, we all remember the tragedy of the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City. It, it really just devastated the spirit of that city. And also they'd lost one of their largest aircraft companies. So the city was in a sort of a funk of saying, what do we do? An advertising executive and the mayor came up with the idea, having gone to San Antonio, they said, why don't we put a, a canal through downtown Oklahoma City? Now, somebody had to think that was a crazy idea. Oh, they, not only they thought it was crazy, but the nearest river, which was about a half a mile away from the city, is so dry that they joked, we have the only river that's mowed three times a year. But they worked with the Corps of Engineers. They dammed up the river so when it did rain, it held it. They created a canal that routed it through part of downtown. And now that area is really hopping with restaurants, uh, apartments, sort of like the Beltline here in Atlanta. It brings a new excitement 
to their downtown area. And it's full of young people. It's full of great places to go as tourists. And it has really helped that city turn around. So when you do something like that, where you take a river that was mowed three times a year, turn it actually into a waterway, bring business to downtown, how do those leaders, the government leaders who are working this, as well as the CEOs and the folks in the private sector, work to get past the skeptics again who say, this is a ridiculous idea and this isn't going to work. This isn't going to help grow the economy in this area. Whereas you find in your study, that's exactly what it did. Well, I think big problems are always hard to solve. And I think sometimes they take the business discipline of saying, let's pick a specific solution and let's work on it year after year after year. And the vision, I think, of bringing downtown back on top of the current mode at the time was our city, we don't know what's going to happen to it. People are leaving. Young people don't want to stay here. So the motivation, again, this is a tipping point issue. We've got to do something to save downtown Oklahoma City. And since then, they've built a new baseball park. They've built numerous parks and recreation centers around the area. And it's renewed the spirit of that city. Is that the impact you think the Beltline is going to have here in downtown Atlanta as various components of the city are now being connected? Oh, I think it's going to, it's as Mayor Franklin used to call it, the necklace around the city. It's going to connect different neighborhoods. But as I travel around the country, I find urban leaders and mayors in other parts of the country saying, how on earth did that come about? I mean, they're fascinated to say, you took an old railroad from a Civil War era and made it into a new sort of bohemian young person's goal to live there on apartments and hiking and walking trails. And I think that vision really has come of age, and I think we're seeing parts of it now that are red hot. When I was at the Chamber of Commerce, we recruited a company called Athena Healthcare that moved into the old City Hall East, or people that are old enough would remember that the Sears, the Sears, Sears and Roebuck headquarters. It was sort of a boondoggle that uh, Sears had given to the city, and it sat and sat and sat, and the, and the mayor sold it off to Jamestown Properties. Athena Healthcare, which is an electronic medical records company, heavily dependent on these young, highly educated people, the millennials, or as some call them, young and restless. <laughs> uh, the executive of, of Athena Healthcare, Jeff Bush, came in and he said, I want this location because I know if I'm here and young people are all around, I can fill these jobs. And now they have almost 400 jobs of high-paying technology workers that come from that area. And I think we're going to see that repeated in different parts of the Beltline as it starts to circle the city. And it's created a lot of talk in other cities of saying, you know, that's that. And there's a there's an urbanist now called Richard Florida and another one, Bruce Katz with the Brookings Institute. And they call them innovation zones, innovation districts. It's a hot buzzword if you're a city planner. And the Beltline is a perfect innovation district, of course, Right here in Midtown, next to Georgia Tech, is another big Fifth Street. The Starbucks there at Georgia Tech is a hot spot for Innovation Zone. What I'm hearing you say, Sam, is that for a city, an urban area, to remain strong and vibrant and to continue to grow, cities need these innovation zones, places that are going to be attractive to young people as opposed to as soon as I get out of high school, as soon as I go away to college, I can't wait to get out of here. We want to bring young people, the young and the restless, as you call them, those millennials, here to stay, 
live, be single, build families, have lives. Well, you're exactly right. And I think the technology companies, technology industry is driving this even more. Every mayor wants to have a high-tech company in their city. But high-tech companies are also getting smart, too. They're saying, you can't lure us there by just giving us money to offset our move. We want to make sure we can hire the workers, highly educated, multicultural workers. And we also want to make sure that your city proposes a quality of life and a tolerance of various cultures. That's very important to this new millennial population. And guess what? The young and restless don't believe Chamber of Commerce PR or anything else. They're on social media talking to their friends from college or networks and other places, and they check it out, and they are very migratory. If they come to your city under a promise that they thought was there and it doesn't materialize, they're restless. They're gone. So cities have to keep reinventing themselves. A city never stays the same. A city always says, okay, what's the new, new thing now that we have to adapt to? And culturally, this is a very important thing, I think, also, the fact that Atlanta's the birthplace of civil rights. It has an international community that's unrivaled, particularly in the southeast. And that gives Atlanta a big cutting edge. And we've got a lot of other cities that are looking over Atlanta's shoulder trying to say, how can we beat them constantly? So Atlanta has to constantly work at this. And I think, I think we're doing a great job. I think there are some great examples out there. Loft housing, young people. Just walk the Beltline on a Saturday. You'll see Atlanta's future. Now, is that why Atlanta is poised to be so successful going forward? And, and cities you know, like Detroit seem to just be in a constant state of struggle. Well, I think Detroit had the unfortunate situation of being home to an industry, automotives, that really went straight down the tubes when 9-11 occurred and the economy crashed. Uh, we're fortunate that our economy is diversified here. Detroit's coming back. The automotive industry is coming back. And business leaders there are back in there helping them refinance and put a creative bonding program together to help bail out the city by selling an art collection to private philanthropist, but it stays in Detroit. So I think you're going to see that, that this whole change in evolution is, is something that people cannot take for granted. They've always got to be looking over the horizon, or as the famous Gretzky saying is, where's the puck going? That's where you got to skate to. Were the business leaders that you met with in researching and writing, the CEO as urban statesman, eager to share with you their success stories and their best practices? Oh, yeah. But I think also they're, they're as a group, not wanting to take a lot of notoriety for it. For example, in Columbus, Georgia, John Turner with W.C. Bradley Company worked for 12 years with the business leaders and elected officials there to turn the Chattahoochee River into a white water rapid, class four white water rapid, right through the middle of downtown Columbus. Now, now there's an idea. People thought he was nuts, but I think one of the things that motivated them is that young people were leaving Columbus 10, 12 years ago. Because the thing they, you don't want to happen. You don't want that to happen. They thought it was a mill town, the downtown area was dead. Now, fast forward, Columbus State University has a campus downtown. Aflac, Tesis, Synovus, so many companies are there now pushing together with the elected officials to say, let's help save downtown. And that's happening right here in Atlanta, too, with the proximity of our universities, Georgia State, Morehouse Spelman, Clark AU, all Georgia Tech, 
right near in downtown. And I remember when I was a tech student, you didn't go across Marietta Boulevard west. And now, good gosh, all the way over to Atlanta Road is a hot real estate. Uh, loft housing surrounds the Centennial Olympic Park. And, of course, the Olympics was another great example of business leaders having a vision. I remember when Billy Payne and Andy Young said, let's go get the Olympics. People said, oh, boy. They late. looked at them like they were crazy, too. They are crazy. They're chasing a pipe dream because it's the Centennial Games. It started in Athens, Greece. They're going to get it. But Andy and Billy put together a coalition and kept at it. And, boy, we're still collecting dividends off that. That was a real turning point for our city, wasn't it? Yes, it was, because I think I've heard some people talk about, well, Atlanta got a lot of physical buildings and assets out of it. But I think the other thing that Atlanta got out of it is it went through an experience as a city, as leaders, as citizens, and the 40,000 volunteers who worked with these athletes from all over the world. I think we came out of it as a city saying, okay, we can admit we got problems, we're now a bigger city, we're a global city, we're in the Olympic club, and that brings with it a certain amount of confidence without having, one writer told me, he says, you know, Atlanta used to be sort of a swashbuckling southern town that had all this swagger and had to brag about everything it's doing. And I think after the Olympics, a lot of that has been, hey, we did that, we can do anything if we put our mind to it. And we can also admit that we got problems and we gotta fix them. Yeah, speaking of problems in the Atlanta area that need fixing that we tried to fix, but it, I guess at that point was not the right solution, which speaks to how you talk about the partnership being one that takes a long time to find the right solution. Atlanta still has some pretty significant transportation issues. Oh, boy, do we ever. We, we really have an infrastructure issue in the this, in this city. We have grown so much over the last 40, 50 years, but we've done relatively very little around infrastructure for transportation and for water. Uh, transportation, the business community worked on that, is still working on that. I think the solution that was, was pushed through the General Assembly to have a referendum, it was tough to get that referendum bill authorized. And obviously the people voted and said, we don't want, A, so many projects, 152 projects, uh, and see, we don't wanna pay a penny sales tax. So perhaps it was too much to bite off as a first step. But I am encouraged that MARTA now is going to be expanded after a referendum in Clayton County. Those people obviously said, we need jobs. MARTA means jobs. I think we're also gonna see MARTA expanded into North Fulton, perhaps Gwinnett County in the not too distant future because I think those people see jobs. And I think the other thing is that I can remember 10 or 20 years ago, people would say, well, I don't want to ride transit. But, you know, there's, there's a potential for crime here. It's not the kind of people I want to be around. A lot of code words. But now I think folks are saying, hey, it takes me 45 minutes to get to work every day. And when something bad happens, it could be an hour and a half. I'm over that. I'm not going to move, but I'm ready to do something different in getting to and from work. So it's a practical solution in one part, and the citizenry just seems to be more sophisticated today, you think? Oh, yeah, because I think a lot of us, well, as we always say, it's rare to meet somebody who's really born and bred in Atlanta. We're all from somewhere else, and people move here from the Northeast or the West Coast. 
I've met a lot of people who've moved here from the New York and Boston area don't have a car. And they get here and they're shocked. You got to have a car. You got to have a car. And I think that's changing attitudes about public transportation. And I think the next one that's going to come back again with us is going to be water. We just don't have enough water for long term for the future of the city. And of course, we're right now in the U.S. Supreme Court. The state of Florida has sued Georgia and the Supreme Court has decided to hear the case. That could be a huge, huge issue for the future of Atlanta. Do you see it ending our way? It's very hard to call right now. You don't. You really don't want to take something like a fight over water to the U.S. Supreme Court. That's a pretty essential necessity that we all got to have. Well, and also a federal district judge a few years ago, Judge Magnuson, ruled that Atlanta didn't even have the right to draw water from the Chattahoochee for drinking because he said the Chattahoochee River, which was built by the federal government, it's managed by the Corps of Engineers, the Army Corps of Engineers, and they operate the lake according to federal law, not according to what we in this region might want. So it's a big dispute about how much water Atlanta can draw from the lake, not only the city of Atlanta, but also other counties and municipalities. I think the other thing is that we've got to have a water grid in this region. We've got over 60 municipal water systems in the region. Metro Dallas has less than five. We need to tie these pipes together so we can move water around and, of course, sell it and buy it, just like you do other commodities. So while this is working its way through the courts, Sam, is that one of those projects that's quietly being worked on by uh, a group of elected leaders and CEOs and private industry individuals? Well, John Brock, who is the president and CEO of Coca-Cola Enterprise, worked for years uh, with then-Governor Purdue on on a contingency plan of what happened if the federal court ruled against Atlanta's ability to draw water out. And the result of that was that Governor Deal put $300 million in a bond fund for local governments to build infrastructure. That's a great example, but we've got to have more. We've, we've got to, we, what we really got to do is to say, okay, we all want our local communities. Those are vital, whether I live in Avondale or Smyrna. I want my local community. But there are certain key issues like water and transportation where we cannot exist as individual communities. We got to work as a region. And they got to lose the, the silo. We got to get out of the silo on those kinds of issues. They're not easy, but other cities have done it. And those two, I think, right now are going to be the real test of Atlanta's long term future. And business is ready. And we've got to have partners in the public sector who are saying, we're ready too. Sam, what did you take away from all that you learned, all that you heard from the leaders and elected officials that you talked to in assembling these case studies from these cities for the CEO as urban statesman? Well, I think the lesson is if you can find an issue that's at a tipping point that people really agree across political boundaries, urban, suburban, that you can get business leaders to step forward to work on it. Uh, they've got to be willing, they've got to have a thick skin. They've got to be willing to put a coalition together of many different voices, people that agree and disagree, people that have different alternative solutions. You've got to go through that process, and you need to have either a consulting firm or academic back, backing or others to determine what facts are in the case. One of the case studies said we, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. 
And once you get those facts put forward, then push to get a solution. And then stick with it because the case studies that I've cited take 8 to 12 years. And real big problems don't get fixed overnight. All right. Some very good advice. Some very good advice. The book is The CEO as Urban Statesman. The author is Sam Williams. Sam, uh, best of luck to you here in the new year. Thank you, Condison. I really enjoy being on your program, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Perspectives is a public affairs show produced with you exclusively in mind. If there's a guest or perspective you'd like explored, we'd like to hear from you. Write Perspectives, 1601 West Peachtree Street, Atlanta, 30309. And always, we can continue the conversation on our Facebook page, and I invite you to follow me on Twitter. Just search Condus Presley. Thanks again for listening, and join us next week at this same time as we examine another perspective.